Well, I've lived this last month and the chances that we've had as a church family to serve and to love our neighbors. Uh, and a lot of you guys made that possible. So thank you so much. There were some incredible ways that some of you saw some of your faces in there. Unfortunately, I lived up to my own stereotype because I'm wearing a Batman t-shirt the one time that they decided to get some footage. So next time I'll just have to dress a little bit more pastor-like or something. But yeah, it's really great, isn't it, to be part of a church family. And I don't, I, it's very important in moments like this, we don't want to pat ourselves on the back because it's, really, it's not about us and how great Chapel Street is. But what I, I do want to say is I'm glad to be part of a church family that makes this a priority, to serve our neighbors. Because again, we, we talk about this all the time. We want to be a church that exists primarily not for ourselves, but for our neighbors. And it's, I don't know about you, for me, it's easy to let that drift into the rearview mirror. So it's so great that we've got to have this last month to really kind of refocus ourselves and say, what's happening right around us that we can be a part of meeting needs and supporting and serving? So again, if you serve, thank you so much. We need you uh, and you're helping us make a difference as a church family. Well, me and Janine have been uh, on a couple of vacations the last two weeks. It's kind of that moment in our summer where we try and squeeze everything in real quick. And this last week, we just went down to Florida to visit some of my family uh, they'd been there um, just kind of doing the whole Disney well thing. We did not think that that was a good idea financially or just mentally to go into that craziness in July. Uh, but we went down for a few days to hang out with them. Uh, and I'm always reminded when we do trips like this of how different my life is now having four young kids. Because I remember times when I would travel on airplanes prior to having those four wonderful, wonderful little gems with us. And now what it's like to be trapped in a pressurized tube at 30,000 feet with four wild animals. So it's uh, very different, very different. Um, and uh, I'm thinking back when we were getting about when our life changed, when this all changed for us. I've got a picture here. This is September 2014 when me and Janine found out we were having Jonathan, our oldest. Of course, we're merging the two flags there. It's great. Um, this is a picture taken afterwards. Because your life just gets completely upended and all of a sudden all the joy and the cuteness, you know, everybody, you're leading up to your, the birth, everybody's like, oh, it's going to be so fun, it's going to be beautiful, it's wonderful, and then the baby arrives and they're like, welcome to hell, you're not going to sleep. So it was, it was quite the drastic change and there's, there's one or two things in our life, kind of like having kids, that changes everything around like this, right? Maybe getting married, maybe getting a new career, things that move our priorities around, move our expectations around. For me and Janae, having kids radically reorganized our lives and it revealed areas where we didn't think we were as wise or as clever as we thought we were, revealed areas of weakness and struggle. There's a few things, like I've said, that can do this in our lives, but nothing does it more dramatically than faith. Nothing will reorganize our lives as dramatically as faith does. True faith is going to reorganize your priorities and redefine your treasures. That's what true faith does. We told ourselves at the beginning of Hebrews 11 when we started this series, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's how the author of Hebrews opens up. If in Christ we have the assurance of what we hope for, if in him we have the conviction of the things not yet seen, that is going to change everything about us, isn't it? It's going to reorganize our lives. And as we continue this series of examining faith, what I want to do, what we want to do is, is keep walking with this author and look at a man whose life was radically reorganized by faith. A man called Moses. 
Now it's fitting that Moses plays such an important role in chapter 11, because if you remember the people reading this letter who received it first, these were Jewish believers that were struggling with their faith in Christ. This was a group of believers who facing persecution and struggle, they were asking themselves, is this worth it? Everything that we're going through, everything we're facing, is this worth it to be doing this, to be going through this? Should we go back to what we had before? And what is it that they had before? was the law of Moses. Moses was, for Jewish believers, this figure of faith that was the absolute apex, the pinnacle of what it meant to walk with God. And they clung to these laws, they memorized them in ways that we don't even have time to explore. They would, they would memorize entire books of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, trying to make themselves like this man. And so what the author of Hebrews does, he says, this man that you aspire to be like this one whose faith you hold up is such an important value. His faith was in Christ. He tries to remind them that the kind of faith that Moses had didn't lead him away from difficulty and struggle. Actually, it propelled him into it. It pushed him into it. It took him out of a place of comfort and security and put him into a place of struggle. Why? Because true faith will reorganize your priorities and redefine your treasures. I want to play a little bit of catch up as we jump in here because a lot of things have happened in between when we left off with Joseph last week and where we're picking up with Moses. At the start of Exodus 1, we're told that a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So as Joseph's people, that tribe of he and his brothers grew, the new pharaohs that came along said, this is not good. We don't want a group of a different culture, a different tribe of people that outnumber us. Let's enslave them. Common practice in the ancient Near East. So a new pharaoh does that. Now this is something that obviously was incredibly distressful for the people of Israel, but we already knew it was coming. Because in Genesis, all the way back with Abram, this is what God says to him in Genesis 15, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So even as the people of Israel might question, is this God's plan for us? Is the promise actually working out? We can go back to Genesis and say, this is exactly what God said would happen. Even in this distress and this brokenness, God's still in control. And how important would that be for New Testament believers who are reading Hebrews, asking, is it worth it to follow Christ? Are things going right? We're being persecuted, we're struggling. We can say again, yes, this is God's plan. But things get worse for the people of Israel. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, you know that he is born in the midst of a national genocide where the Pharaoh is so overcome with fear about what was happening that he ordered all Hebrew boys to be killed. And he started by telling midwives, if you see that a woman is given birth to a Hebrew boy, I want you to kill them immediately. And when the midwives refused to do this and there was struggle getting this done, Pharaoh takes it one step further and he orders his men to take every Hebrew boy and to throw them in the Nile. It's just utterly horrific. Horrible set of circumstances. But in the midst of that, God moves and Moses is born, this man of faith. This is what Hebrews tells us about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents 
because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I want to look at three effects that faith had on the first part of Moses' life. The courage of faith, the choice of faith, and the confidence of faith. Let's take a look at the courage of faith. Now, I mentioned this a lot in my sermons. Uh, it's an endless tool for me about the, the awkward nature of British people. British people are some of the most awkward people on the face of the earth, primarily because we can't see what's actually going on in our head. It's like a, a mental inability to actually just be honest with people. So if you've met any kind of British people, including me, you will notice that we have a really hard time with conflict and we, we always try to pull our punches a little bit. So if, if someone's annoying us and irritating us, we don't say, hey, you're being really annoying. We say, hey, I, I hate to bother you. You know, I, you're a really wonderful person. Could you maybe just not do this one little thing? And we just, it's this endless cycle of, ah, oh, don't really say what you really think. Don't say what you really feel. It's terrible. You can even watch it in some British politics, really. This over-compulsive need to be stiff up a lip and be polite. Janine actually gets mad at me sometimes when we're in a restaurant and things don't go well. She's like, why don't you just tell them that they got your order wrong? And I was like, no, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to, you know. She's like, they got your food wrong. You're paying for it. Just tell them. Right? That's a British trait. Now, what's unique about the Hebrew people in this story and in this moment in history, they are a people who are unafraid to tell the truth. They are a people unafraid to have the courage to face up to what they need to do. Now Moses' story begins with women who by faith had the courage to rescue him when it was costly to themselves. Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Here's how this story, this moment plays out in Exodus 2. In Exodus 2, we're told about a man from the house of Levi that went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, uh, took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dubbed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. There's a courage that comes from Moses' parents' faith and from these women around him that compel them to act. We're told in Exodus 6 that the names of Moses' parents are Amram and Jochebed. That's a pretty fun name to say. And they are in the midst of this genocide going on all around them. They get pregnant, they have a son, and they decide to hide him. Now, can you imagine what it was like to try and hide a newborn baby? When we had a baby, everyone in the neighborhood knew we had a baby. Can you imagine what it was like to live under the stress and the fear of knowing if we get caught, if we get found out that we've defied Pharaoh, it might not just mean the death of our child, it might mean our death, it might mean the death of our entire family. Because to these people, Pharaoh was seen as a divine figure in Egypt. To defy him was to defy the will of the gods. But here we have parents taking their lives in their hands and saying, no, we're going to do what's right. We're told that they were not afraid of the king and that they saw that their child was a fine child. That's how the, the English tra the translation works in Exodus 2. They saw that he was a fine child. And now, I think that that's a little bit odd. Sometimes I read that and I, I think, is it saying that they just thought he was a cute baby? And so they're like, well, let's not put this one in the Nile. He's pretty good looking. 
It's actually something much more meaningful than that. See, this word for fine child, it's a Hebrew word that can be translated a couple of different ways, and one of them is good. It's actually the word that when God creates the world in Genesis 1, he says, saw that creation was good. It's a Hebrew word, tov, that same word that is used to describe Moses when he was a child. So what Moses' parents are doing is they're seeing this child and saying, this is the goodness of God. This is good. This is intrinsically valuable. It's worthy of protection. This life means something to God. So they protect him. Now we might be tempted to say, well, are they doing this just because he's parents? I mean, wouldn't any parent do this for their child? Well, maybe. But it's not just Moses' parents who are doing this. It's a whole community of faith who have taken it upon themselves to protect what God calls good. We're told about two Hebrew midwives in Exodus as well. Shifra and Pua who, who risked themselves by defying Pharaoh to protect children. This is why we as a church want to partner with organizations like Caring Network, why we want to partner with organizations that protect children like Safe Families. It's why we talk about how important kids' ministry is because children, in the eyes of God, are tov. They are good. They are of infinite value and worth. They are as image bearers. They are beautiful. Faith drove a whole community of people to act, not just to have an ideological belief, but to make it their mission to value what God values. How can we have that kind of courage? How can we be like these women, these parents, who say, let's not just believe this in our minds, but let's be about this, no matter what the cost is to us? It's actually simpler than you think. We were talking in our preaching team meeting this week, and we were talking about this passage about courage and what it would be like to be in this moment. And Pastor Jeff shared this story of a military service member that he sat with down one time, and they were talking about courage. And this military service member told uh, Jeff, I believe he was in the SEALs, he said, when you're in the military and you're in frightening situations, you don't rise to the level of courage that's required in that dramatic moment. You default to the courage of your training, what's been bred into you, what's been trained into you. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, puts it this way. He says, in order to be a brave man, you need not leave the ranks or run up to the cannon's mouth out of bravado. Soldier of Christ, just keep your place. Do the work appointed by the great Lord, trusting in him and believing in his power to help you. If you want to have great courage to do great things for the Lord, have courage to do small things for the Lord. Have courage to obey him when it's quiet, no one sees, and it feels unimportant. Have the courage to reach out to a neighbor and form a relationship with them, even though they've got a political sign in their front lawn that you disagree with. Invite them to dinner, love on them. Have the courage to find a spot where you can stretch yourself in serving, where you can love people that have needs that need to be met, that no one else is seeing. Have the courage to be open with your church family, this one's always hard for me, to share the ugly moments of our lives with one another. Not just the good, pretty ones and the ones that feel good and exciting, but the hard ones. To ask for people to come and pray for us. The other thing that Moses' parents had is a courage not simply to act, but to trust. Because what do they do? After three months when it's apparent they're not going to be able to protect Moses at home, Moses' mother takes him, famous part of the story, puts him in a basket and sets him on the Nile. 
I would have serious problems about putting a three-month-old baby on the River Nile. There's crocodiles in there. There's strong currents. There's all kinds of things happening. A three-month-old child in a basket. Now, this is not a crazy woman. This is a woman who has trust in God. This is a woman who knows I can put my child in the hands of the Lord. His hands are actually better than mine. It's a courage, a courage to say, God, I surrender to you what is most precious to me, my own children. They might have wrestled and thought, well, we want to protect him, we want to make sure he's safe. Surely it's better that we hold on to him and we're in control and we come up with the plans and we have all the ideas. But they had the faith to say, no, if our son is going to be saved, we need God. We need him to act. We need him to be present. That's true for our kids today. You know, one of the most common struggles for me is I look at the well that my kids are growing up in, the confusion and the chaos and all of that, and I worry, will they be able to cling to God in this? Will I be able to be the father that they need me to be, to have the wisdom and the answers? The correct answer is no, I won't. I won't. I will not be for them what they need, but Jesus will. I want you to understand that on your best day, when you have loved your kids the most, the deepest, deepest love that you've ever felt for them is but a pale shadow of how God feels about your kids. He is deeply devoted to them in ways that we cannot begin to imagine. And the best thing that you can do as a parent is put your children in God's hands. Pray for them, make space for them, listen to them, serve them, absolutely do everything we can to love them, But at the end of the day, don't put your trust in what you've done for them. Put your trust in what Jesus has done for them and will do for them. He will never take his eyes off them. He'll never abandon them. Where are you trusting in yourself for your kids' salvation? I know that for some of you, you're not in my position where you're thinking about young kids. You're thinking about grown kids. It's not what they might face. It's what they are facing. The same is still true. Jesus' hands are better than yours. He loves them. He'll be faithful to them. Trust him. Second thing we see in this passage is a choice of faith. Now I told you we went on a trip early this week. Whenever we go on trips, I'm the kind of guy that likes all the luxury add-ons, much to my wife's chagrin. So when, we, uh, when we're renting cars and it's saying, do you want to have a heated massager in your RAV4? I'm like, yes, that's worth $1,000. And Janae's like, that is a terrible idea. Why would we pay for that? And when you're getting on the airplane, they said, do you want to have the exit row every time? We're, like, I remember this trip. We were in the airport at the check-in desk, and it's adding you, do you want to pay an extra $200? And I'm like, let's do it. And she's like, no, we have four children and mouths to feed. Why would we pay for that? I always like the luxury add-ons. Now, you know what's unique about Moses? When we read his story, when we go through all the details of his life, Moses is a man who seemingly does the exact opposite. He's at the height of luxury and power and privilege. He's in Pharaoh's household and he chooses to walk away from that. Not to keep the luxury add-ons, but to give them up. Hebrews 11, 24 through 25, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pledges of sin. This is an important moment in Moses' life, but I want to, Set this up because it's not necessarily as nice and tidy as we might be led to believe. See, Moses, what happened is he was sent down the river, he was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted by her. 
He went back to his own mother by the grace of God and was raised with her for a couple of years while she nursed him. But when, when he was weaned, when he stopped uh, breastfeeding, he was sent back to Pharaoh's daughter's house. How long was he there? Act 7, Stephen tells us that around 40 years later is when Moses went and visited his people for the first time. That's a long time in Pharaoh's household. 40 years. Don't know what he thought about his people in that time. But we know that in 40, at 40, something happened in Moses' heart. It came in his heart to go visit his people. So he goes to see them and he sees something bad happening. This is Acts 7. This is Stephen telling us about Moses. He says, when he was 40 years old, came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Things go horribly wrong on Moses' first attempt to step up to the plate. But lay aside for a moment this terrible sin and how bad things go. We have to notice that something's changing in Moses. 40 years in the palace and now he's making his people's concerns his concerns. Something is changing. Moses has a lot of brokenness in him. He needs a lot of work, but he is making the choice to move towards the people of God and the mission of God. Do you know there's a lot of brokenness in you? There's a lot of mistakes that you're gonna make. That is not a reason to not come towards God. It's not a reason to give up on what God wants to do in you. Faith will always move us towards the people of God and the mission of God. And be encouraged by people like Abraham, who even in his faith ended up sleeping with Hagar, his servant, and not obeying what God had called him to. Have faith that even though we follow the faith of men like Jacob, we need to understand that he deeply wounded relationships with his family over some of his foolish choices. Think about Joseph, incredible man of faith, maybe one of the greatest examples of faith in all of the Old Testament. He began his life with not a lot of humility. There's always brokenness in us, but that doesn't mean that we can't move towards God. Secondly, Moses makes the choice to take on a new identity. Hebrew tells us he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now that's significant because that was everything about Moses. That title, it defined him. His power and his privilege. And Moses chooses to leave that behind. I want to tell you about this really interesting thing. When we go back to Acts 7 where Stephen's telling the story of Moses. He says, Moses, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, did you catch what happens in that moment? Moses thought at the beginning of his journey, it was his, it was his power and privilege that was going to save his people. He thought, this is what I should be doing. This is who I am. I'm in the palace. I've got authority. I've got influence. That's not how God wanted to save his people. So Moses flees after this crisis. He runs. He lives in Midian for 40 years. And this week, Pastor Brian said that it took 40 years in Midian to get 40 years of Egypt out of him. Because he was so tied up in his identity as a son of Pharaoh's daughter. But when he encounters God, things change. And he gives that title up. He chose a new identity to go back with his people, to suffer with them, to lead them not from a place of power and authority, but from a place of service and humility. I wonder, do we as Christians today, do we embrace that same kind of choice? Do we choose lowliness over power and privilege? 
How many of us would have argued with Moses and said, don't leave the palace. Do you understand how much influence you have? How much power you have? Isn't that better for our people that you stay there? And God says, no, that's the worst idea. You've got to leave that behind. You've got to walk away from that identity. Sometimes we can do more from the king, for the kingdom of God by being present with our neighbors, being involved with their lives, than trying to do it from a distance from some place of power and privilege. Grace to walk beside people is more important than politics. It's more important than wealth. It's more important than positions of power. And lastly, in this choice of faith, we see the choice to pay the price. Moses has to pay a price, doesn't he? There's a cost to grow in faith. There was no one in all of God's people who had more power and privilege than Moses. There he was at the seat. Probably knew Pharaoh personally. And God says, to grow in your faith, you must be willing to pay the cost of forsaking the fleeting pleasures of sin, Moses. Everything that comes with that comfort, that security, it's time to give it up. That's what God asks of us to make the choice to pay the price. Jesus said, those who want to follow me need to take up their cross. What's the cross? It's a symbol of sacrifice and death. We've got to count the cost. We must be willing to let God interfere with our life and strip away the things that are not of him. C.S. Lewis called Jesus the transcendental interferer Because to follow him means that he is going to come into your life and completely reorganize it. And he's going to strip away things that you don't want him to strip away. He's going to challenge you on things that you don't want to talk about. We must surrender the right to use our time how we please, our resources how we please, our bodies how we please. But that's a price worth paying. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 3 when he's talking about what he is counted as lost for the sake of Christ. He says, whatever gain I had, and Paul had a lot of gain, I counted as lost for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. By the way, the Greek word for rubbish is the word skubala. I'm not gonna say what it really means in church. Go look it up later in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, all the wealth, all the treasure, all the glory that I had in these other pockets of my life are worth nothing when I look at what I'm gaining in Christ. I'd rather give my time to him, I'd rather give my resources to him, I'd rather give my whole heart to that one then keep chasing it in power and privilege and authority and comfort and security. That's the confidence of faith. This last movement we see in this early part of Moses' life, this confidence of faith, because we have to ask ourselves, why does Moses make this choice? Why would Moses give up the palace? Where does that courage come from? And how can you and I likewise find faith today to have that same experience. Verse 26 tells us, Hebrews 11, 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I wanna pause just for a minute there, because isn't that a little odd 
that the author of Hebrews would say, Moses considered the reproach of Christ. He has no idea who Christ is, right? I mean, this is thousands of years before Christ came along. Why is the author of Hebrews talking about it that way? I think John's gospel gives us a clue. In John 8, Jesus is talking with some Pharisees. He's getting into a conversation about the, the history of the Jewish people and these men and women of faith. And he says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews, they raise this natural question to say, you're not 50 years old, Jesus, and yet you say that you knew Abraham and he knew you? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. It was this really shocking moment in Jesus' life where people started to understand what Jesus thinks about himself is not that he's just some regular teacher. This is the one that everything has been building towards. I don't know how this works. I don't know exactly what Abraham and Moses and David and Jacob and Isaac, all these, I don't know what they understood about what was to come. But what's clear in scripture is that they looked forward and they understood that God's promise was gonna deliver to something, deliver something to them of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. Generation after generation, men and women had courage and made impossible choices because they had confidence that God himself was greater, that he was more beautiful than anything else around him. You know, sometimes I think as Christians, we sell or try to sell the world on religion. We try to tell them the reason you should follow Christ is because we want to do everything right. We want to be good people. We want to be decent people. We want to be the best kind of people. And we fail to tell them about the most precious and most beautiful thing in Christianity, which is Christ himself. It's not what happens in us that's beautiful. I'll tell you, there's nothing in me that's beautiful and admirable and worthy. It's broken, it's ugly, it's messy. What's beautiful is Christ. That he would come, that he would love me, that he would give himself for me, that he would serve me. That God himself would serve me, a sinner. See, if by faith we would see him as he is, if we would see God the way that Abraham saw him, the way that Moses saw him, we'd realize that the beauty of Christianity is God's holiness, his character, his mercy. The splendor of his love will melt away all of our confidence in earthly treasures and riches and power and influence. And just like Paul will say, rubbish. This is what we need. The price is worth paying because Christ is worth having. God's worth is the only thing that will kindle true faith and courage in you. You won't muster it up by forcing yourself. You can't drive yourself to become courageous and faithful. You must behold the risen Christ and let the beauty of his goodness and his love for you take control. And the problem is we are often unwilling to make space for that. I had a really great conversation with Mike Bosch a couple of weeks ago. We were one of the SAV projects. And he told me about this TED Talk that he went to where uh, the leader of the TED Talk said, the problem in our life is not that we don't have space for things. It's that we don't want to change our priorities. And he gave this great example. He said that uh, if you had a, a boiler break in your house, if I asked you today, do you have space in your life for the water heater in your house to break? You would say, absolutely not. I'm busy. I don't have time for something like that to happen. But then when the boiler breaks, do you have space for it? Yeah, because you make it a priority. I gotta get that fixed, I gotta take care of that. Some of us say, 
I don't have space for more serving. I don't have space for more involvement in church. I don't have space for more Jesus stuff. But that's not true. It's just that something else is of a higher priority to you. And God's gonna come in. He's gonna radically reorganize your priorities. He's gonna redefine your treasures because he wants to make space for something better. Something that you can't even imagine. Do you think that Moses had any conception at all when he was in the palace that there was something better than that? I'm gonna close by just thinking on one of the greatest parables in all of scripture, Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the confidence of faith. The story of a man who says, what I've found here in God is worth the loss of everything else I have. God told Abraham, I am your reward. Not the land that I'm gonna give you, not the descendants I'm gonna give you. I'm the reward, Abraham. And that's what he tells us. There is a generation around us of people who are asking this question. Is Jesus worth it? And God is waiting for us to answer that question with yes, he is. But as long as we busy ourselves with other priorities, as long as we keep our eyes on the fleeting pleasures of sin, the world is gonna wonder, is it true? Is he really worth it? Let me assure you today, Christ is worth everything. If you come to him, you'll find yourself walking a path that will require courage, but he'll supply it. If you come to him, you will find yourself having to make hard choices, but he will be with you and he will give you grace. If you come to him, I promise you, he's gonna reorganize your priorities, he's gonna redefine your treasures, but he will also meet the longings of your heart. He will give you a peace that surpasses understanding and he'll give you a joy that does not run dry. May we, like Moses, by faith, choose to turn towards the God who is beautiful and good. May we refuse the titles that the world offers us in favor of being called his. May we run into the arms of the one who is our very great reward. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this chance just to reflect on your goodness. I must confess, Father, sometimes I don't see the faith in myself that I read about in Moses. But Lord, you invite me to find it. You invite us to find the faith that brings courage, that leads us to make difficult choices, and that gives us confidence that your promise is better. Father, help us to be the kind of men and women who follow in the footsteps of Moses, who consider Christ of greater reward than all the treasures of Egypt. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.